The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. According to OnTrack, the magazine published by the CDA, or Conference of Defense Associations Institute, hybrid warfare, also known as gray zone conflict or unrestricted warfare, is a real and present danger. OnTrack states, these are just three terms used to describe the same phenomenon multifaceted attacks against a country that have serious implication for its national security and defense institutions. They may include military elements, but may also be mounted using cyber tools, public and commercial corruption, weaponization of legal systems, transnational organized crime, and disinformation campaigns, along with a host of other methods Effective responses will demand an unprecedented level of cooperation between military, intelligence, cyber, and other security experts in partnership with experts in the management of conflict in business, legal, and public settings. Critical risk expert Calvin Krusty points out FBI Director for Christopher Rye uh, statement saying the Chinese government is a serious threat to Western business. The Chinese government sees cyber as the pathway to cheat and steal. In addition to traditional and cyber-enabled thievery, there are even more insidious tactics they use to essentially walk through your front door and rob you by making investments and creating partnerships that position their proxies. They use elaborate shell games to disguise these efforts from foreign companies, including shutting off data that used to enable effective due diligence. A 2017 law allowed them to force Chinese employees in China to assist in Chinese intelligence operations. I invited Calvin Krusty, a critical risk consultant with a depth of experience in anti-terrorism and complex international investigations and intelligence operations to join me for a conversation that matters about the nefarious activities of countries that do not have Canada's best interests at heart. Galvin, welcome. Thank you, Stuart. Looking forward to the conversation. Well, are you? Is it as bad as I spelled out in I that intro? I think it is, um, and I think you know we've been having these conversations. I, I think you and I first had a conversation several years ago about some of these activities, and uh, we have conversations with our uh, clients, um, with the government sector, and I think particularly in the last several weeks, when one looks at the newspaper headings across the uh, country and uh, globally as well, it's pretty hard to escape the conversation. Um, it, it's, a it's a difficult concept um, to grasp and understand because of the complexity, but it's also a difficult one, um, I think, because it uh, does create a, a high degree of anxiety and concern uh, without a clear path for solutions and mitigation, to be quite frank. Well, it's spelled out in that introduction. It seems to be coming at us on all fronts. It's not just a military assault. It's not just a political assault, but it creeps into every aspect of our lives. Yeah, and, and I think there's a famous uh, book uh, written by uh, Mark uh, Galliati, who's one of the leaders uh, in terms of thought leaders in there who wrote about uh, this phenomena with uh, the state of Russia. 
and uh, his book's titled Weaponization of Everything. And uh, it basically is that. And one of the challenges I think we have is uh, experts plus governments always like to compartmentalize uh, uh, issues or problems in terms of, in this particular case, for example, very, very prominent to uh, uh, people uh, currently here in Vancouver looking at it, money laundering or in Ottawa, uh, electoral interference. Um, but to look in them in, in isolation, I don't think uh, does, any dis does a disservice to the whole threat mitigation and protection of Canadians uh, from this threat. The interconnectivity of all the threats is really important, as you alluded to, and to try to look at them as individual uh, threat vectors. I think uh, undermines our response and our understanding, you know, as Canadians to have an awareness in terms of, you know, the seriousness of the threat and the complexity of it. So who has to take the, the lead here? Uh, because if there's so many different uh, institutions and politicians and then there are the laws, there's the yeah. court, um, and then individuals, <clears throat> like how do we move in a, in a way that says, okay, we're going to protect the things that are important to our national identity. Well, I, I think the phenomena isn't restricted. I mean, like from a government perspective, it's not restrictive to the federal government. It's not uh, restricted to the provincial government and it's not restricted to municipal or even indigenous communities. I think that's really important. But most importantly, 75%, I'd say roughly, um, as that article that we wrote about of the uh, threat activities hit business leaders, law firms, um, public servants, and that. So the, the public themselves has to take the, a leadership role on it. I, I was watching a video, I think last week, uh, I think it was a Johnny Carson, old uh, clip from Johnny Carson, and it had uh, Ronald Reagan on it. And uh, his message was the most important message to Americans when he was in leadership was, <clears throat> don't rely on government to get you out of problems. Uh, it's going to be the public, they have the innovation, they've got the capital, they've got um, the intellect, they have all the capability to do this and you know from a democratic perspective theoretically they're empowered to, 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 to lead as well and I think uh, at least in my experience the concerning part is Canadians currently and I'm sure other countries as well are relying on the government to protect them and mitigate them but I, I, I would say that they would have a, a uh, they, I would urge them to use caution in terms of relying on the government to do it. The, the bureaucracy, the complexity of the issues, the legal framework that we have in Canada really makes it difficult um, for the public sector to protect the private sector and the Canadians generally. I gotta get you to hang on for a second while we take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So in that introduction, I pointed out that a 2017 law in China compels Chinese citizens to share anything that they have to do with, uh, you know, intelligence with the Chinese government. Do we have a law like that here in Canada? Are we morally obliged as individuals if we come across something to report it? And if we do, yeah. <laughs> are we protected? I think, 
you know, it's probably the biggest, one of the biggest impediments, I would say, is our legal framework in terms of protecting Canadians. I think it's really hard, even for the well-intended Canadians that want to do the right thing because of the structures of the laws that we have in Canada. I've talked about this, you know, in other public inquiries I've been involved, i.e. the Cullen Commission um, on uh, money laundering, that it makes it really hard to work at a global level with our international allies and our partners, but it even makes it hard for the public to uh, work with the police, work with our intelligence uh, community um, because of the laws in terms of under the charter of uh, Stinchcomb is basically if you have a conversation with the police person and they're looking at prosecution, um, they're going to have to disclose that information. And, and the old, source. And, and the source uh, of it. So it's very difficult to protect. The only protection I'm aware of is then <clears throat> protected through um, becoming a human source. And how many CEOs or how many um, you know, CFOs or how many lawyers want to be an informant for the police? Not that many, I would imagine. So it's, it's, it's one of the only areas that you can get per protection. So a lot of what happens quite often is, I think the issues get buried in boardrooms, law offices, because they're trying to uh, mitigate the uh, um, uh, reputational risk attached to coming forward and cooperating with it. And we saw that with BCLC uh, in the money laundering issues uh, here regionally, where they came forward with a, uh, uh, an issue that they had with well intentions. And then the next thing that happened was the inquiry and all the collateral damage. There was no protection to them, even though they were trying to do the right thing. And then all of a sudden, everything gets spun out in terms of the media, uh, in terms of social media. Who knows who was, or who knows who was on social media, escalating, amplifying uh, these things. And it's kind of, it, it, it's it's very difficult to deal with these type of issues. Come forward and expect any type of confidentiality in it. So, you know, you talk about the fact that. Yes, there may be military installations that are being targeted and so on. But you then say, no, there's a much broader and more insidious campaign underway that is targeting the, uh, like the civil liberties that we have or the using and uh, guiding uh, social media networks and uh, non-governmental agencies to push forward messages. Like, and they're doing it on so many fronts. How do, these, how do any of us know whether or not what's moving us in one direction is legitimate? I think that's the, uh, one of the biggest concerns uh, is you don't know. I, I mean, and that's, the, that's one of the strategic objectives uh, you know, from the adversaries is to create that uncertainty in terms of truth, non-truth, in terms of, um, say, business leaders or political leaders uh, having the ability to develop a strategy, have strategic objectives. Well, when all the information is so murky and there's conflicting information and fake news and misinformation and disinformation and malign information, it basically makes it very difficult to operate and be strategic as business leaders, uh, legal leaders, uh, political leaders in this type of environment because at the end of the day, the community is all is confused in terms of what's happening and what to believe, what not to believe. And it really makes us more vulnerable for additional threats. And that's kind of the strategic approach of our adversaries is to create confusion, create chaos, 
and create vulnerabilities that they can exploit further. You also talk about the weaponization of organized crime. Yeah. How terrifying is that? Well, I think we're seeing, you know, we're, we're seeing a lot of safe, just easy issues, you know, very identifiable. Photographs of uh, our politicians at all levels uh, with organized crime and organized crime affiliates. It really doesn't matter at that point whether they our politicians are engaged in organized crime, receiving uh, illicit finance, you know, in terms of their donors and their sponsors, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But at the end of the day, the intent is not that. The intent is to undermine the trust in terms of the leadership in democracy and undermine democracy and the principles of democracy to create those uh, vulnerabilities. So we are seeing that alignment in terms of it. A question that I always had was, the generation of billions and billions of dollars through illicit finance here in terms of, uh, like say for example, in the Canadian context, how much of this is going to um, sponsor, what well, we saw in the Cullen Commission, it was going to uh, government to support government in terms of policing, healthcare, education, in terms of some of that through the casino process. So how much of that in other sectors is going to uh, sponsor, you know, foreign, um, investment um, in terms of critical uh, infrastructure, in terms of natural resources uh, and that. I don't know how much is, but I would imagine that there would be a significant amount of money being moved and being uh, manipulated in terms of uh, seizing the interest in critical infrastructure and natural resources as well. This is our second break. We'll be back in a moment. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. Okay, you're scaring the daylights out of me. <laughs> what do we do about this? Is there, is there a way that we can move forward? I think number one is having conversations about it, obviously, and uh, heightening awareness. NATO's primary approach to it is um, awareness is probably the greatest uh, mitigating uh, factor to it. So putting the spotlight on it, um, they hope to mitigate it. So in Europe, say for example, they have probably more dialogue than we are, uh, say for example, in North America having on it historically. I mean, we're obviously having some in the last uh, one to two years, but it's been going on probably for 20 to 30 years. So how are we supposed to have that dialogue though when our prime minister, the moment you raise it, especially if you mention the Chinese government, he goes, that's racist. Well, no, we're talking about the Chinese government. We're not talking about Chinese people. We're talking about the government, but yeah. he wants to shut down that conversation right from the start. So how do we have that conversation? Yeah, I mean, that is one of the biggest challenges and, and, and I think you hit a super important issue. Anybody that knows this issue knows that it's about states and it's not about cultures and it's not about people. It's about, you know, governments and their uh, infrastructure in terms of their military infrastructure, intelligence infrastructure and security apparatus. It's very difficult to, to have that conversation when it gets uh, shut down like that, but I guess persistence uh, will happen. I think the journalism uh, field probably has played and is playing probably the most critical field at this uh, particular time, but unfortunately they are getting attacked uh, as well. And I just think the more, you know, just the persistence in terms of keep having these dialogues 
And sometimes things have to break and sometimes um, the situation has to get better sometimes, unfortunately, for a system to evolve and get better. And I think that's kind of the state where we're at right now uh, in terms of the public confidence, in terms of our political apparatus, I'd say is probably getting close to a, an all-time low right now, which hopefully will lead to some opportunities in terms of improving things. So in that statement from FBI Director Christopher Ryan, yes. he says they'll walk right through your front door. They invest in your company. They place their proxies on your board. What then becomes the responsibility of a public uh, company to move forward, to step forward, and how can they do so? Well, I think one of the challenges is, I think our culture um, isn't known to be the most strategic thinking culture like other cultures. And I think um, there is a high degree of indifference in terms of how this is going to impact them today versus how it's going to impact them tomorrow and future generations. And I think that's the concerning part is we have to be <coughs> possibly looking at a uh, more strategic approach to this in terms of business leaders and others recognizing, well, this may not impact them today. It's going to impact their kids tomorrow and it's going to impact their future generations on it. Other generations, i.e. our grandfathers who you know, fought World War II, they weren't thinking about just themselves, they were thinking about future generations. And I think that's something we have to bring to. And I think that's why in the Project CSHAT, which you alluded to that uh, I'm a participant in, um, that's why we took the approach that we took. We looked at this and we went to change. There's a lot of people trying to spotlight and change the issues today. And what we did is strategically we looked at some lessons learned from uh, the adversaries in terms of a strategic play, i.e. playing chess rather than playing checkers, and going, hey, let's work with the uh, university environment. So we're working with business schools, law schools, international affairs schools, and try to build up, the, number one, the awareness, two, number uh, two, sorry, is the uh, skills, number three, is to provide some awareness and access to tools. And that's why we're working with the universities, and that's why we, you know, Develop this project, uh, Shishat, for that purpose. Well, isn't the Chinese government working with those same universities? It does appear, uh, at least the Chinese government is, and oh, perhaps are you suggesting others. Suggesting more? Mm. I would suggest that. I don't think we've really looked at that issue. Um, I know, uh, you know, the issue of Chinese uh, government involvement in the Canadian universities has been spotlighted recently in the paper with some evidence to support it. And I would, uh, guess that there would probably be our adversaries would probably be in there. Other adversaries, sorry, would be there as well. Possibly the Iranian government and others. Cool. Okay. So it comes down to individuals as well. What can an individual do? Because I mean, you're looking at the resources of, countries, not just companies, but countries, mm -hmm. and you're an individual as a Canadian citizen, first of all, do I have a legal responsibility to report a crime if I witness it? <clears throat> well, context is everything, so it'd be hard to go, hey, in this particular situation or not. Morally, ethically, and professionally, you would, 100% uh, legally. It's always a gray area, and it's kind of uh, case-specific. All, all I'll say is, the approach that we're taking on it, uh, and I go back to um, uh, one of your original questions in terms of like how to deal with it and the information warfare I'll refer to in terms of the misinformation, disinformation, malign information. 
where it becomes really confusing what's going on, what's going on, what's out. And, and, and I think that awareness piece and the understanding as to really what's happening is essential. And I, I, I'll, I'll go back to that is if you look at Finland in elementary school, junior high school, high school, they teach their kids the difference between news and fake news. They're, they're educating uh, their generations how to mitigate this threat. And unless we kind of look at it, you know, from a very strategic approach like this, you know, the back and forth bantering, you know, between pl one political leader to the other political leader using it for political mileage, I don't think is going to get us that far. And I think that's why, you know, the educational uh, factor is probably going to be the most um, um, impactful yeah. uh, in, in this approach. Uh, how to go forward in terms of if you do have that information. It's something that we face. We get clients all the time in our own business uh, coming forward and saying, hey, we have this information. We want to do the right thing. And it is a really complex um, process in terms of how to get sensitive information from, from a person in Canadian society to the police or to the intelligence uh, apparatus in a safe way. And I'd say uh, probably 20% uh, of our work is involved trying to help business leaders and lawyers do that. Third and final break. We'll be right back. The production of this program is made possible thanks to the support of the following and viewers like you. So somebody who's watching says, okay, you've just scratched the surface with this conversation. Where do I find out more so that I can do exactly as you're saying? Uh, build a better body of knowledge, share with other people, take action if possible. Well, I would say sadly, uh, current affairs, it's pretty hard to escape it if you look at the headlines. Like uh, last night before I went to bed, I just scrolled down on the uh, news feeds. And when you really look at it and you start looking for it, you'll find it everywhere. When you see uh, money laundering, where you see transnational organized crime, when you see corruption, where you see electoral interference, uh, cyber, all this stuff, it's all interconnected and usually driven quite often by a state which is hybrid warfare. So it's, it's out there in social media, but some of the uh, good areas is we're trying to start publishing stuff for project. Um, so there's a little bit there and we're trying to build find more. Find who we are. Uh, project CSHAT. Okay. Yes. Um, and where can they find that information? Just online through, you know, Googling uh, Project CSHAT. S-E-S-H-A-T. Yes. Okay. Uh, I think another great uh, resource is the uh, Finland uh, center on Hybrid Warfare out of Finland. It's kind of like the body uh, of knowledge of excellency, I think. Um, and a lot of the uh, other things, I, I think the uh, McDonald-Laurier uh, Institute is doing some uh, good work and we're doing having some liaison with uh, them as well. And they uh, have some people looking at this issue as well. Um, it's out there pretty much everywhere, sadly, right now. Well, it, it becomes incumbent upon us as individuals to do our due diligence and to stay ever alert to potential threats because we cannot naively believe that they don't exist. Yeah, and, 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 I, and I think, you know, when I reflect on all this, I think the difference in terms of being successful mitigating it and not mitigating it, just thinking about the next generation is uh, probably the most critical point. Thank you, Calvin.